Hello from Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. We'll have a special guest with us in a few minutes, uh, State Representative Wendy Horman. We're going to talk about a bunch of summer projects that she's been embroiled in, the Higher Education Task Force and the School Funding Formula Committee. But first, I want to welcome Clark back to the States. It's been a couple of weeks since you've been in in the podcast. You're uh, over your jet lag, I hope, (laughs) over kind of the baguette uh, hangover (laughs) and everything. Um, But probably good that you uh, may have overloaded on carbs and baguettes because you've spent a good chunk of the week chasing a very uh, sensitive and very explosive story out of the State Department of Ed. Get us caught up. Yeah, it's uh, some of you folks, some of our listeners will remember uh, just last month, in the middle of August, we announced that Superintendent of Public Instruction Sherry Yabara had hired a new spokesperson, and this was someone who was going to serve as a Deputy of Government Affairs, mm-hmm. high level position, serve as the point person on the Idaho Land Board. Uh, so she hired Dan Goykachia, a veteran of the Idaho State Controller's Office, right. a prominent uh, Republican in political circles, and uh, this was kind of Yubara's new spokesperson, new point person on policy for the land board. Very prominent public position, as it was touted. Absolutely, and uh, come to find out on Tuesday, so just over a month onto the mm-hmm. job, we find out suddenly uh, that Dan Goykachia has resigned from the State Department of Education Resigned office, on Monday. Effective uh, a day earlier, essentially no notice. In the short term, when we first found out, the SDE and their director of communications uh, was not giving any more information about the circumstances uh, for departure. It was considered a private personnel matter, and they were not going to contact. And then Wednesday happened. Mm-hmm. And yes. It, and this was a, a very serious uh, story full of serious yes. allegations, but uh, what has come to light is that a... Former colleague at Mr. Goykachia's previous office at the Idaho State, state Controller's, Controller's office, office filed a tort claim with the state, against the state, on Monday, the same day that Goykachia resigned from the SDE, right. making numerous serious allegations about racial uh, discrimination, about intimidation, uh, harassment. Sexual harassment. Um, uh, it, it runs the gamut. And you can read the entire tort claim on our website. We've got a link to it. It is extremely graphic, though. I mean, no going in that it is uh, pretty. Uh, it's it's pretty graphic stuff. It is. It, it's seven pages long. Uh, there's a, a number of words in there that we won't say on the podcast, and that you could not say uh, on on network television. Uh, it, it details. Uh, some, and these are allegations. I want to be perfectly clear. Right. Mr. It's Wikichita, not a lawsuit. Uh, it's a precursor to a civil lawsuit. There have no, been no criminal charges. Right. It's, it's, a, it's a step in a civil, uh, civil proceeding. So what these are, these are allegations at this point. We have reached out to Dan Goykachia several times uh, to try and get his side of the story, to try and find out if he has an attorney uh, who's representing him. We have not been able to reach him, but if we do, uh, we will give him the opportunity to uh, explain uh, his side of the story, but it, it's seven pages long, uh, numerous uh, descriptions of a, alleged sexual harassment, uh, about foul language used into the office, about uh, physically uh, allegations of physical, uh, physical intimidation, intimidation in the know. workplace. Um, pretty disturbing stuff, pretty serious yes. allegations. And the state controller's office 
uh, responded a, a little bit later on Wednesday by denying any wrongdoing on the part of State Controller Brandon Wolf, who was mentioned several times in mm-hmm. the complaint. Uh, the complainant alleged that Brandon Wolf uh, either condoned or did nothing to stop right. this behavior and it implicated him that way. The State Controller's office has denied that. They gave us a little bit more information and said that they hired a independent law firm to conduct a internal investigation into these allegations following that investigation, uh, which started in mid-July of this mm-hmm. year, I believe. Uh, they took corrective action, which included, uh, as they described it, separating uh, Dan Goykichia from employment with the state controller's right. office. Now, that took place on a Friday, apparently, and by the very next Monday, August 14th, Goykichia had applied and been hired by Sherry Ybarra's State Department of Education. We reached out to the State Department of Education several times uh, this week, attempting to ask, both of us did, uh, what did Superintendent of Public Instruction Sherry Ybarra know uh, about uh, Dan Goykichia's departure from the Controller's Office and about his work history? What did he disclose to her, and, and when was that disclosure made, and when specifically did the superintendent learn of the tort claim and these allegations of harassment and discrimination? And the State Department of Education declined several right. times to comment, right? Right, and, and that's where I think this becomes a, a political story as we head into a, an election cycle. Uh, this tort claim, again, a claim, but... The claim and the timing of this whole, you know, this whole saga, this whole disturbing saga, really puts two state elected officials on on the defensive with with some explaining to do. Uh, state controller Brandon Wolf, who has come out and said that he did not condone this behavior, that he, you know, that they basically said they they let uh, Dan Goykachia go over all of this as opposed to State Superintendent Ibarra, who's not talked about uh, what did she know about Dan Goykachia's work history at the Controller's Office before hiring him? When did she find out about the tort claim? Uh, these are important uh, things to know, and that's why we've pressed the department on this. Uh, it goes to you know how did this department and how did the superintendent personally handle a very high-profile hire? Hiring somebody who also has been a political ally in from the, the past, beginning, from from the get go, uh, I think there are some very serious questions here that have not yet been answered by the superintendent's office. So we've pressed that issue and will continue to do so. We'll continue to follow it. Uh, obviously, it's a personnel uh, issue. Uh, potentially, there is a lawsuit looming, and so uh, it may be hard to get information quickly. But we'll try to keep our readers and listeners up to date, and, especially and if this advances. From anything beyond this initial tort claim that we've seen this week, if it, right. if it, if it gets settled or thrown out or if it uh, advances to a next step, whatever that next step would be, we'll, we'll try to keep right. people f- in the loop. Personnel issue, but worth noting that you've had two state elected officials take a very different view about what you can and what you won't say publicly about a personnel issue. I mean, uh, Brandon Wolf's statement Wednesday afternoon was pretty to the point about uh, how he felt his office handled this personnel issue. Uh, Ibarra right now has been silent on that issue. But we have we no idea how in. that office handled that right. issue. And we'll keep asking and we'll keep uh, keep tabs on it. Uh, Head over to our website, IdahoEdNews.org, if you want to get caught up on that story or if you do want to read the complaint. Just keep in mind, uh, very graphic, very explicit 
Uh, it's not censored in any way, so right. keep that you in mind if you're going to look out there unfiltered and, and uncensored. So it's uh, it's all there. Uh, yeah. for those who want to check it out. So you can check that out. We'll continue to follow it. I do want to talk about one other big story. Kevin, you have been taking a look at the upcoming 2018 gubernatorial race, taking a special look at education issues, putting those under the microscope. You've had a chance to visit with the candidates. Who did you talk with most recently, and uh, what were some of your takeaways? Well, this week uh, we had a chance to interview uh, Congressman Raul Labrador about his gubernatorial race and his take on education topics heading into the 2018 election. Uh, a couple of takeaways, and, and you know, really quickly, and you can check this all out in yep. more detail at idoednews.org. You can see Andrew Reid's video excerpts from that interview. I was not terribly surprised by much of anything that uh, Congressman Labrador said on education issues. It was more or less what I would have expected and more or less what I would have expected a Republican trying to court the conservative wing of the electorate it's what I would expect to have heard. Uh, he would like to get rid of Common Core. He would like to push for school choice. Not because the the Trump administration is pushing for school choice, but just because he philosophically thinks school choice is a, is a good thing to, uh, to pursue. Uh, he wants to uh, encourage more uh, parental involvement in education. You know, these are a lot of the, the kind of catchphrases and, and buzzwords that you would expect a conservative Republican to... Uh, to adhere to during an election. The thing that was more of a takeaway for me was maybe the uh, the tone as far as how he would approach the governor's office and how he views the you know the way education right. has been handled right. by Governor Butch Otter. Um, you know, Congressman Labrador, no big ally of Governor Otter. They, they've crossed uh, crossed swords on numerous occasions in the past. He was very pointed, uh, Congressman Labrador, saying that he feels there's been uh, a lack of vision on education issues from the governor's office. He was fairly supportive of what has come out of the governor's task force on education and gave a pretty favorable early review to the governor's higher education task force, which uh, did its recommendations last week. But uh, a very different tone in terms of how he would like to approach education topics, uh, suggested he's going to be a lot more hands-on, suggested he might want some changes in in approach from the State Board of Education. And that's where the governor, a governor, has extremely uh, powerful control over education yep. policy. Now, the governor gets to appoint members to the State Board, subject to Senate approval, but that's usually uh, kind of a, a formality. The governor's State Board of Education can chart a lot of education policy and, and can set a lot of education tone. And uh, Labrador said he doesn't feel like this uh, board has gotten enough vision from the governor. Not surprisingly, uh, he wants a state board that kind of adheres to his vision on things like school choice and parental involvement and uh, dollars following students as, as they go through the school system. So anyway, there's a lot there. Check it out and check out our stories on the other two gubernatorial candidates, Tommy Alquist and Brad Little. I, I did not compare too much in the story about Labrador or any of these stories. I mean, the stories kind of stand on their own, and we talk about a lot of the same topics with the three candidates. So to get the full effect, you, you really do kind of have to read all three stories, and I kind of hope you do, so that you can get a sense of where these uh, three candidates uh, differ and where they are charting common ground on some key education topics. Good original reporting to check out. You've brought education issues to the center of this race early. 
uh, in a way that nobody else has been able to, and it was really worth right. checking out. It's just out. the beginning. We just wanted to get an early take, an early read on these candidates. Long way to go between here and May, but uh, it's a good early read on it. All right. Well, check that out, and we're going to reconfigure our mics and be back with our special guest in just a moment, so hold on. And joining us this week on the podcast is State Representative Wendy Horman, a Republican from Idaho Falls. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Kevin. Great to be here. No, it's good. It's good to have you here, and it's good to catch up because you've had a really busy summer. You've been involved in two committees that we've been keeping an eye on, and I wanted to talk about both of those. I wanted to start with the higher ed task force. Um, their work essentially finished last week with with the recommendations, and we saw the twelve recommendations. We've got the rundown of those on our, our on our site already. But I wanted to get a sense from you of. How did you think this process went? How do you feel about these recommendations? And what do you think of the prospects uh, for these recommendations going forward? Yeah, it was a good process. I think all the right people were at the table. There were uh, students there, university Mm -hmm. presidents, all the members of the state board, the legislature, and uh, the business community was also well represented at the table. So they were very healthy conversations with a lot of expertise around the table. Um, I think the uh, recommendations are focused on building this seamless transition uh, from high school to college and out into the workforce. So I think we'll see a lot of uh, conversation around the workforce development Mm -hmm. recommendations specifically. And then um, the final report, I believe, is due to Governor Otter by October October 1st. 1st. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there were two recommendations that jumped out at me and... I'm especially interested in your perspective on them because you sit on the the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee. I mean, you're going to be writing education budgets here in a few months that may include some seed money, perhaps, for this digital campus. A lot of talk about the digital campus and trying to expand higher education offerings into rural Idaho. Do you have any sense what that's going to uh, wind up Costing and how that may play through the uh, the budget process because there there's going to be some infrastructure costs to to moving education out like this. Sure, that that was one of our early conversations uh, around this this fact that if we do want to move the needle on this, we need more students in the system. And that forty thousand number that got thrown around back in June. Right, a, right, a, a and, and you know to try and fund that in the existing system would kind of break the bank in terms mm-hmm. of the existing uh, model. So. Uh, the, the conversation around the digital campus was exciting to me. I think we have, um, you know, we have some great examples out there. Western Governors University that operates on a, on a competency-based model, and you can take as many courses as you want in, in six months for $3,000. So there's some great examples out there of, of uh, productive ways to do digital. We also have some really great examples right here in the state. Uh, our, our existing universities are doing some online work and blended work very well. So I think uh, this will probably be one of those issues that uh, needs further discussion and, and maybe a subcommittee is, is developed around so that we can uh, iron out some of those details around cost and, and delivery models and what that structure might look like. Do you see much discussion on the funding end of it this session, uh, in the 18th session, or is that going to be more of an issue for future legislators and future legislative sessions? You know, in my experience on the task force, I didn't really hear any details around funding. I think there's a lot more exploratory work that needs to be done um, before they're able to come up with some cost estimates. 
Another one of the recommendations, and this does have a longer rollout window, as it was discussed last week, is the idea of more of a performance-based funding model for higher education, outcome-based. Unclear, really, to what extent would Idaho go down this road? Uh, how much of the higher education budget would be based on these metrics, like degrees offered and degrees received and at-risk students served? How do you see that working its way through the budget process? I uh, I understand that uh, that will be delayed one year. Right. There will be like was... kind of a shadow budgeting going yeah. on the first yeah. year to see how it would work and how it would affect funding. Yeah, very similar to um, what we're doing with the K-12 funding formula conversation right now, actually, mm-hmm. create these models where um, you, you, don't want, you don't want surprises. And so when you run these modeling tools, you're able to predict you know, what the results of these changes will be. And I think that is the plan for the current budget year. So I expect to see line items coming through, uh, just like we have for the, the previous years. And, um, and then as uh, further definition is given to an outcomes-based approach and defining ex- exactly, as you say, what those parameters are, then I, I see us looking at that more in the 19th session. Mm-hmm. What's your... What's your take on this? I mean, how do you think this should be rolled out as, as one member of the budget committee? I mean, some states have put just a, a small sliver of funding into a performance-based model or an outcomes-based model. I think there's one state that does all of its higher ed funding on, on this outcomes-based model. How far would you want to go with something yeah. like this? You know, in principle, it's a great, it's a great idea. Let's, let's pay for results instead of inputs, right? <laughs> so in principle, it's, it's, a, it's a good idea. However, what you don't want to do is create negative or perverse incentives in your system. So if you're uh, incenting the wrong things and, and uh, in ways that might turn a university into more of a diploma mill and mm-hmm. disincentivize them accepting students that might be difficult to graduate, you don't want to go in that direction. So, And that was part of the discussion last week. I mean, it, it passed unanimously out of the task force, but uh, Representative Elena Rubel was raising questions about just that. I mean, do we water down the value of a degree by incentivizing giving out degrees too, too freely or, or too cheaply, basically? Yes, yes. The, it, there, were, uh, there was healthy conversation around yes. that issue, and I expect much more of it in the future. Okay. Let's turn to the other uh, summer assignment that you've been working on that you're back in town for this week. Uh, the Funding Formula Committee has continued its, uh, its process of, uh, of working through uh, navigating the, the school funding formula. You've got another meeting coming up uh, on, on Friday. Um, give me a sense of how you think year two has, uh, has unfolded, where you think uh, this process is now, and, and what, you, what you think the prospects are you know, moving forward into the 18th session. Well, as you know, we spent our entire first year essentially listening to people. We wanted to make sure that um, they knew this is something we wanted to do with them, not to them, that we wanted to do in response to their concerns, the barriers that they're currently experiencing. And, and so I think that was a great way to start. And it led us into this year now where uh, we have started to get more in depth with, into analyzing other states' funding formulas, trying to learn uh, some approaches from other states that might work here in Idaho. Not that any other state's funding formula can just be cut and pasted here, it can't. Mm-hmm. Um, no state really has cracked the nut of the, you know, the, the ideal way to fund students. 
Um, so we are looking forward tomorrow to uh, having more discussion on other states' formulas. We've hired a, a research consultant to bring some analysis into us here in Idaho. That's Marguerite Rosa. She's been here before. She spoke to the legislative committees uh, back in January. Yeah, she, she has. I'm also participating in an education finance fellowship through the National Conference of State Legislators. Mm-hmm. Last Thursday and Friday, I spent two days in Denver with 35 uh, researchers from around the country who study nothing but education finance. And she was also at that meeting and one of their uh, main speakers. So That's we, either a really granular discussion or a really fascinating <laughs> discussion, depending on how interested you are in the funding formula. Yeah, and, and for me, it's been a long-time interest. Um, I, it, uh, you know, as, as a school board member, I, when I was first elected, I was given some advice uh, by the, the member whose seat I was uh, filling. And he said, go sit down in the business manager's office and don't leave until you understand school finance. Well, 11 years later, plus five years of legislative (laughs) service, there's still a lot to learn. And so those have been the principles that uh, we're uh, targeting with this conversation. We need a formula that is more flexible to student and staff needs than the the one that's very difficult to adjust Mm -hmm. now. We need better transparency. We need equity and... uh, we need greater flexibility at the local level. So those are the guiding principles that we have in mind, and it will be very interesting. I'm very much looking forward to seeing uh, the research that she has compiled. We also have hired her to do an analysis of the Bloom modeling tool, the right. simulator mm-hmm. tool. Uh, so she will report to us tomorrow on uh, the integrity of that system. Has it been constructed properly, and uh, is it something we could use moving forward? or? Um, you know, should we look in other directions? So I'm, I'm very much looking forward to hearing her report tomorrow. I remember the analogy that you used when we talked about this back in the beginning uh, of the, the 16th session when this was first being rolled out. It's like a house. The 1994 school funding formula, it's like a house. And over the past 20-some years, we've added bathrooms, we've added, you know, bonus rooms, you know, line items to deal with everything from, like, charter schools to, to online to helping with classified salaries. How much simplification can you get in this formula? And, and, how, and how realistically can you have a simplified formula to propose to the 18th legislature? Yeah, uh, great question. So we, we have two components of that. We have the strict funding formula, which drives the salary-based apportionment and benefits. And that's about a billion dollars in our existing budget. And so that formula drives those funds. But then another $700 million, um, roughly, goes out in categorical or what we call line item Mm -hmm. funding. Well, the more line items you have in a state budget, the less flexibility you have at the local Mm -hmm. level because you have the state saying you will spend this amount of money on this issue. But there's a measure of transparency to the line items, at least in the sense that, well, as a reporter, I can say, well, this is how much the state is putting into technology or you know, pick my line item that I'm interested in that day. Yeah. We, hope, we hope to leave tomorrow's uh, or we hope to leave the funding formula meeting uh, with some uh, building blocks of what some ideas of what a, a different formula could look like in the state of Idaho and then test those. We, fiscal stability was one of the governor's task force, you know, main Mm -hmm. objectives, and we don't want to destabilize uh, 
uh, public school funding. But if we can modernize it and still give that sense of predictability and stability, what school districts can count on, no surprises, that's what we want to do. I wanted to shift gears and talk a little bit about politics and the elections. Um, Your name has come up in the rumor mill for several months uh, as far as the race for state superintendent. Um, What can you tell us about where you're where your mind is at this point uh, pertaining to that race. You know, I've been really humbled by the number of people that have uh, encouraged me to uh, take my expertise and and, uh, apply it to a different office. But after discussion with my family and good friends, I have um, decided to seek re-election to the the legislature. legislature. Yeah. So what what tilted the, the decision for you? I mean, this is... This is a big decision whenever anybody decides to run for statewide office. There's a lot of time commitment. There's a lot of uh, financial commitment, personal commitment. What what tipped the balance for you? Yeah, you know, representing the people of Bonneville County, first as a school board member and and now in the legislature, honestly has been one of the great privileges and honors of my life. And um, education is definitely what brought me to the legislature. That's why I decided to run in the first place. But uh, since I have been here, I've begun to see how important other issues are, uh, not only to education, but to the people that I represent. For example, the Idaho National Laboratory is in District 30. It's Mm -hmm. in the district I represent. So it's very important that I represent those interests as well. People are interested in always in tax policy. Water's a big deal in our area. Uh, transportation, um, energy, all of these issues um, deserve attention as well. And I've, I've appreciated learning about them and, and being an advocate for them as well. So I, I hope the people that I represent will continue to give me that opportunity in the legislature for now and, and possibly other offices in the future. But for right now, I'm very happy doing the work that I'm doing. I love serving on JFAC. I love the numbers. I, uh, I, I'm, I'm just very happy doing what I'm doing right and, now. And you have no small voice in the education process as a member of JFAC and, and as one of the members of JFAC who spends a lot of time writing those public school budgets. I mean, A is... lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of early mornings, a lot yeah. of late nights. Yeah. And, to... and not to mention the funding formula committee. I mean, that's almost a full-time job in and of itself. And we're um, right in the middle of that, and I, I'm committed to uh, seeing that process through and and uh, whatever result this, that yields. And that's got to be part of the juggle, I'm sure, as a pers- on a personal scale. I mean, that's the busiest time of the year for legislators, obviously, and, and for members of JFAC, you're, you're putting in long hours. I mean, I think about other sitting legislators who are running for higher office or, or contemplating higher office. I mean, Luke Malik, uh, Mark Hagedor, and Kelly Packer. I mean, that's that's two big jobs that you're having to divide your attention. It is, and ultimately, that um, I just decided that is that is where I want my focus to be in in the coming months, um, and not out campaigning for the state superintendent's race. Yes. I will definitely be campaigning <laughs> for my legislative seat. I understand. 
Well, thank you so much, Representative Horman, uh, for joining us. Thanks, Kevin, uh, for a great discussion. I think that's about all the time we have this week on Extra Credit. I want to thank everybody for listening. As always, we have a lot of fun on the Extra Credit podcast. Just to give you guys a peek behind the curtain, we were talking about some dates and events this week. We actually recorded the podcast a day early on Thursday, September 21st, the uh, funding formula committee meeting that we were talking about happens on Friday, September 22nd. That's the day we traditionally release our podcast. So just wanted to give you guys a little clarity on our timeline. But thanks so much for listening. As always, you can find all of our breaking news online at idahoednews.org or follow us on Twitter at idahoednews. But as always, thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Representative Horman, for joining us this week and taking time out of your busy schedule. Thank you. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.